Hello and welcome to the Behind the Wheel podcast, the culmination and brainchild of my own love for cars, but also my determination to ensure that nobody ever goes through what I've been through. That is hating their nine to five and living only for the weekends. Sanjeev Sangira is co-founder and managing director of Donna House and Donna Shack. The Glasgow-based businessman started from humble beginnings. He has worked his way up, struggling through an immense amount of failure, anxiety, uh, mental health issues, and has just overcome so much in his life to achieve what can only be described as the pinnacle of success, but still incredibly ambitious. He has over 25 years of experience in the restaurant business, that is growing internationally and quite frankly he's got an incredible incredible car collection and it's just such an amazing pleasure to have the honor of speaking to this man he is a leading brand innovator and is approached by media outlets like sky news and itv for his opinions and commentary on all things restaurant related his passion for food and drink and his obsession has created the perfect formula for success. So grab some popcorn, guys, sit back and enjoy this interview. I think that's the, the frustrations that I had in school led into other parts of my life. I, I felt like I was a failure. I felt like I wasn't successful. I'd seen so much success round about me from family members who had had made it big in the restaurant industry, who had made it big in hospitality and hotels and um, furniture and, and so on and so on. And I always felt that, you know, I want to be I want to be successful um, and I want to do something that would make everyone proud. And if you trust the journey and you believe in yourself, that's uh, two of the biggest obstacles that you can you overcome um, to, to get to where you want to be. And thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. How you doing, man? I'm really good. Thank you. It's a pleasure being on. And I'm, I'm really glad to hear that Nilesh recommended that you, you bring me on. That's a big compliment coming from him. He's, uh, you know, honestly, um, it's quite rare that I end up peeing myself in the podcast. Um, but he made me laugh <laughs> so much. And uh, yeah, man, when he was dropping names, it was just like, yeah, man, let me uh, let me see what I can do, man. So, yeah, thank you so much, man. Sanj. Obviously, um, there's no doubt that what you've achieved over the last couple of years has been immensely, immensely massive. Um, and it's easy for people to kind of look at that and think, oh, wow, like it's, it's, it's been quite quick. But I, I want people to understand kind of your story, getting to where you are now, because I can only imagine being an entrepreneur, being in business. There's been a whole host of challenges from the start. But before going into that, just talk us through kind of your early upbringing um, and kind of as you reflect now, what would you say were the kind of the biggest kind of lessons when you were growing up that have been so instrumental in your life today? That's an uh, amazing way to start this podcast because the early part of my life was fundamental to where I am now. Um, I grew up around a, a grandfather um, who had left his village at 12 years old in Punjab and went to Lahore um, when it was still um, part of India and uh, used to clean people's shoes 
um, to make some money to try and get by. And the story uh, for of my grandfather was that he was so good at what he'd done that there was a, a general for the British Army who were based there and um, used to like the way that he cleaned the shoes so much that he offered him a job in the bar back at the barracks. So, you know, he went from just cleaning shoes to then actually like cleaning a bar and just picking up glasses and doing small things. He was only 12 years old at the time. So that starts to like really start to play on your mind. Like at 12 years old, I'm sitting there playing Sega Mega Drive. And my grandfather had left the home to go and try and make money to send back for his family. So it was, wow. you know, that that always sat um, like in a really deep part of our, our sort of psyche and our heart about, you know, the journey that's that he took to be able to have some success in the UK many, many years later. So it, it was from a very young age um, that we had just put these two things together, that hard work, no matter how old you are, and persistence are two things that go hand in hand to eventually become successful. And we accepted from a very young age that it takes a long time to get there. So there was that was a fundamental thing. I mean, you know, he went from, his story is amazing because he went from just being someone who picks up glasses to running the bar to then controlling the alcohol supply in and out of Lahore. Um, and at the time of the um, uh, separation, the partition, um, he escaped on one of the, the army trucks. He was very, very lucky to get out. As one of his, his best friends was killed in the riots. And um, he, as he was driving out, he'd waited for him for two hours. And as they were driving out, he seen his body at the side of the road. So you know, really, really like difficult times. And, uh, and you know, things that we, we just, we don't ever want to experience in our life. And we probably won't. Um, you know, we, we live in a nice, pretty safe haven, even though we hear about things happening across the world. But relatively safe all the time now you know when you have to go and make money for your family and you're faced with them kind of circumstances it's it's very difficult but as soon as he got back to India the first thing he'd done there was a um, his village is uh, quite near um, a, a, a town called Garaya um, which is a, a, a there's a train stop there and it's a very very busy place so there was loads of refugees in that area and there was a big refugee Muslim refugee camp and uh, he used to go down um, with all the, the food that he could to try and help feed the people that were there. So, you know, it, it, we grew up with this um, this humbleness um, because of the things that we had constantly been told about how they lived and about their experiences in life. And it, everything was just about, you know, don't ever get too big for your boots. Always remain humble. Always uh, keep that humility because we came from absolutely nothing. So, you know, we always have to remember that. And there's always people that are that are struggling out there, so we've got to to try and inspire them as well. That's amazing. And um, yeah. in, in terms of in terms of shaping your um, early days in entrepreneurship and business, um, how did your kind how did that kind of background influence that direction of travel for you? Um, how did it all start for you when you first started going into business? Many, many years later, um, my brother and my sister had been doing very good at school. They were um, straight A students, went on to do, uh, my brother went to do computing science at Glasgow University, then went to do automotive retail management at Loughborough. You know, they're uh, they're very, very smart. And I was the bit of a black sheep in the family. I went through a tough time in school. I went through a a period where there was a lot of bullying. Um, I had um, troubles concentrating um, at an early age. I had some some uh, mental health issues that I probably didn't identify then, um, identified much later on in my life, um, and then look back at it and think, you know, you know what, I can understand 
um, a lot of, um, you know, my acting out and, and my frustrations in life at that point and you know, getting in trouble and stuff. And for me, there was, you know, like it was, I think I, if I was honest with myself, I knew that there was going to be two paths for me. One was either I joined the family business or two was I just, you know, go out and, and try and do something quite spectacular. And my first attempt to do something spectacular was, uh, even though I'm only um, just under six foot, um, I spent most of the time where I was being bullied in the PE gym in school. And I had a deal with my maths and English teacher that um, I wasn't going to concentrate in class. I wasn't getting anywhere and that I'd be better off concentrating my effort somewhere else. So the only person that was willing to take me in was the, the physical education teacher. And, and I'll, I'll honestly be, be um, thanking him for the rest of my life because that period, it was sort of me against me. And I spent hours and hours and hours in the gym every day playing basketball and I became so good that I got um, invited to go over to America and um, uh, try out at camps um, at division one schools and you know really put a lot of effort into to trying to become a professional basketball player and you know on the cusp of it um, and it's very difficult for for people who are from Britain to go over there and get a full scholarship because it's so expensive so the 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 college that I was getting a scholarship at to sort of took the, the opportunity to sign another point guard. And I kind of got pushed to the side and I decided that this, this wasn't for me and I came back. But in my head, I'd went from, you know, this is impossible. You can never, ever compete with these guys. You can't compete against guys who are born and bred with a basketball in their hands. Can't compete against guys who are seven foot. Can't compete against this. And all I'd done was figure out a way of competing against them. So I was always trying to put how how did your parents um kind of react when you were like, Yeah, man, uh, basketball man, that's gonna be like where I'm gonna go, man? Uh, I don't think it was easy for them. They don't admit it. They were extremely supportive. You know, for first generation Indian parents, they want their kids to be doctors, they want them to be yeah. dentists, yeah. and all them connotations growing up. But um my mum and dad were surprisingly supportive. They were like you want to go to America? How much is it going to cost? You need to go to a camp? How much is it going to cost? And we weren't well off. You know, my dad was working seven days a week. He was in the restaurant from early in the morning because he was the only one uh, in the family that was willing to get into the kitchen and get his hands dirty. So he was in the kitchen from early days every day until late at night. And, you know, for him to part with even £400 at the time for me to go on a camp was, it was a, it was a big thing for me. So I always felt like I'm not going to, I'm not going to let you guys down now. I've let yeah. you down on school. You know, this is my opportunity now to make you make you proud of me. I think that was one of the things that really drove me on was I need to make my family proud. I can't let them down. I've let them down enough, and I need to I need to do something to 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 say that you know I, I'm I'm capable as well. I find it amazing that you're so um, you're so open about the mental health and the bullying. Um, and I want to I want to dig into um how that experience at school then shaped um shaped how you approach your life now and how you approach um work because i know that um uh, there are many people out there who have been bullied and it can lead to a lifetime of of struggling but it can also lead to um this huge amount of success it's almost like this kind of like chip on your shoulder sort of thing uh, but it works in a very powerful, positive way. How do you kind of, how do you look back at that experience now? Oh, it's, it's made me so much stronger. If I hadn't gone through it, 
and I lived with that and I'd never faced up to it, then I think even at this stage of my life, I still would have been just struggling from job to job and 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 kind of not really getting anywhere. I think that's the the frustrations that I had in school led it into other parts of my life. I, I felt like I was a failure. I felt like I wasn't successful. I'd seen so much success round about me from family members who had had made it big in the restaurant industry, who had made it big in hospitality and hotels and um, furniture and, and so on and so on. And I always felt that, you know, I want to be, I want to be successful um, and I want to do something that would make everyone proud. And, you know, when you're going through all these struggles in school and, you know, you come out of school and you're still, and I was working with the family, you know, I went into the family business um, wanting to be a chef because my dad had a restaurant here and that's what we actually were born in the Midlands and we moved up to Glasgow at a very, very young age. And, um, you know, there was this, uh, this thought that, okay, well, I can go into the restaurant now and I can, I can become a chef and I'll become a successful chef. Uh, and I had a passion for cooking. And I remember going in, my dad said to me, you know, you're going to wash the dishes. And for him, he was looking at it and thinking, this boy needs grounded. This boy needs, yeah. we need to take it a step at a time. And in his head, he had an idea of how he was going to develop me. Me, I was like, oh, here we go again. Now dad's willing me. Now dad's wanting me to do the, the, the rubbish jobs and he doesn't think I'm good enough. And I was constantly battling with my own mind. I used to, in my head, I used to talk to myself a lot. So I used to say things to myself and I would wind myself up and, and I would get myself angry and someone would say something and I'd snap at them. So I had I had quite a, a bad attitude for uh, the early part of my, or the late part of my teens. And going into my 20s, I started settling down. I started coming to, to terms with, you know, sometimes my attitude really lets me down and I need to, I need to shape up. Otherwise, I'm going to keep getting left behind. And, and, you know, at a young age, I got married and um, I, I was, a, um, I found it difficult in that relationship because I was extremely, extremely ambitious and I had a partner at the time who, who wasn't as ambitious and, and wanted a much more steady life um, and not one of the, the ups and downs that an entrepreneur would usually have. So when I opened my first business, it was pushing and kicking and screaming at everyone let me go and do my own thing because I still didn't feel that people valued my input. And when I opened it, I borrowed so much money from friends and family. And after three months, I had realized that, you know, I'm about to fail here. I'm going to fail categorically. That was the point where the mental health issues finally came to the very forefront of my life. Um, And that, the depression was so much that I'm going to be a failure. Uh, this is going to take me 20 years to recover from. I was in debt to family of about a quarter of a million pound. Wow. Um, yeah, my business had failed after three months after me talking about it for eight, nine years that I know what I'm doing. I almost thought like everything I was going to touch was going to turn to gold. So I'm sitting there in the shop um, day after day, night after night, this, this takeaway restaurant that I'd opened Um just looking at what the next 20 years of my life was going to look like. And it drove me to the, the depths of, of despair. And it was when I got to that stage and I seen everybody pushing me away, including my, my then wife, um, went back to her parents and, and you know, that, that marriage fell apart. Um, the house was lost in, in that process. The car, I had a beautiful BMW 320 diesel at the time I thought it was the best thing ever the first one in the country that was white with red leather and at the time it was very very fashionable so it was uh, around about um, 2009 and um, 
you know, I see that someone coming along and saying, right, we need the keys. You haven't made your payments. We're taking it away. So I went from from thinking that everything I was going to touch was going to turn to gold to now looking at a failed business, nobody around me to support. Family are looking at me disappointed because obviously the pressures of of everything that happened within the marriage and within the Asian culture, how how difficult a, a position that is. Um, especially for the family, you know, mum has to go and show face at the at the temple of yeah. Godwara, yeah. and and so on and so on, and, and you know, constantly making excuses for me, and they'd be making excuses for me for my entire life at that point, and you know, I went to see um, a psychiatrist, and I said, look, it's just everything in my life just seems to be really erratic, and I just need some consistency, and you know, is there anything that you can help with? And I remember at the time they gave me a whole bunch of tablets, and the tablets were so strong. That ended up um, like a vegetable in my bed. Wow. And about two and a half months of laying in my bed and my sister coming over um, to the house to bring food upstairs and me basically crawling to the bathroom and back into bed every day. Wow. You know, they, they witnessed that for two and a half, three months. And one day I just picked up the tablets and I just said, I'm not, uh, this is not going to be my life. I picked them up and I put them in the bin. And I never told my family that I was going to stop taking them. The thing was that I'd finally in my life been able to question my own mental health for the first time. I'd really questioned it. And I said that I need to fight against my own mental health, not just now recovering from this failed business and all the all the stuff that was going on around about me. And that was my first big challenge that I'd faced in my life and, and tried to overcome. So talking to, and people are scared to admit about, you know, there's so many things that come with with mental health, about depression, you know, and they're, they're scared to admit that, you know, they're having issues. And I would say categorically that if anybody is out there having trouble, go and speak to somebody because yeah. I was at a point in my life where, you know, I was so low and I was in such a bad place that I started having really, really bad thoughts and, you know, talking to them people and trying to understand what was actually going on inside my brain, both on a, a, a chemical level, as well as just how it was affecting me, helped me understand my body much, much better and what things would trigger me and what things would set me off, changing my diet, changing um, the way that I was, I was sleeping. um, And, uh, you know, I was on three hours of sleep a a night at that time. And um, it's just not enough for your body to recover properly. And that's both mentally and physically. So there was things that I was doing in my life um, with the pressures of a failed business that was making me, um, then question, hang on, these are the things that I need to change to start getting better. My sister was a huge help in, in that recovery. And every time I needed to speak to someone, she was the one that was on the end of the yeah, phone. Yeah, yeah. Whether I was, um, you know, like in, in complete despair or whether I was feeling good. And, you know, I didn't tell her that at the time that I stopped taking the tablets. And I remember going downstairs and my mom and dad looked at me like, what are you doing downstairs? We haven't seen you downstairs in the house for, for, for like the last couple of months. And, you know, they both kind of got a little bit of a fright and I said to them, I'm going for a walk and I'll be back soon. In their head, it must have been the most frightening thing that they've ever seen. They said, that, you know, I'm said, I've just came downstairs and I said, I'm going for a walk. They didn't know if they were going to ever see me again. Wow. So I've been the block and I've came back and I said, you know, what? I feel much better. And I remember the smile on my dad's face and um, and my mum was just, she was holding back the tears. And I went from there to, you know, slowly, slowly, like, getting downstairs, making myself something to eat to, you know, it was the smallest, smallest things. It yeah. was just being yeah. able to go downstairs and make some food. It was being able to go for a walk and come back with a smile on my face. It was 
step at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very short space of time. I had um, managed to somehow, um, I don't know if it was God's intervention, um, but I'd managed to sell the lease for the shop that I'd been feeling. Right. And I actually even got a premium for it. I got about £40,000. So I was thinking if I take this £40,000 now, now I'm going to, now, you know, I've got myself back to a, a, a bit of a level footing. I knew there was still a long way to go. And I thought, let's try and take stock of, of my situation and um, go back and open another business. And it was still the same business idea. I just knew that the mistakes I had made before, I wasn't going to make them again. So I went through a process of identifying everything I'd done wrong. And I started looking on the market and seeing, you know, where is there the space for me to go? And there's a small town just south of uh, Glasgow called Ayr. And there was a pizza hut um, delivery and takeaway unit. Um, it was quite big. It was fitted. You know, it had the cold room. It had the freezer room. And I was thinking, I could go in here without a lot of expense. I've got that 40000 I could invest a bit of it. And I can go in there and, and start start again. So I've, um, I've taken on the lease. I've uh, had very little incentives from the landlord because obviously my covenant at that point was very weak. They wanted a deposit and they wanted, um, uh, you know, to go in with, I think I got about four weeks rent free, which nowadays is is ridiculous. But, you know, I was happy with that. I didn't even have enough money for the banner, uh, for a new sign. So I put a banner up on the front of the shop and saying, and I just worked and worked and worked. And the only thing I knew was I've got to work as hard as I've ever worked in my life. And if that means 15, 16 hours a day, then I've got to do it. And that's what I was doing. I was in there first thing in the morning, cutting onions, cutting chicken, you know, making fresh food and being really experimental with my ideas so that it was something different for the market. And about six months in, the business finally getting up to a good level of trade um, and uh, walked in one morning and the mains water uh, um, from the street had uh, oh, burst. No. Oh my so God. I'm and I'm like, this is, you know, it's been difficult enough six months in I'm back on my feet a little bit you know I'm just getting by and uh, now I'm faced with another challenge so you know we went through that period with the loss assessors and the insurance company and I remember the insurance guy coming out and you know just the look of him I just got a bad feeling and the our loss assessor saying look there's about 120,000 pound of damage could be more let's get some quotes some contractors came in around about 160 to 180,000 my god and uh, the um, the insurance company turned around and said, you're underinsured, we're paying you out £14,000. <laughs> At this point, I'm now standing in the middle of a shop, which is, the, it's been about four weeks since the flood, and the walls have started getting mold on them. Um, there's still water on all the appliances and the ceilings collapse and all sorts of other stuff. Um, got a, an offer for £14,000, and I'm looking at my options, which is, do I go to court with these guys and try and squeeze more money out of them? Or do I take this £14,000 and either start paying back some of this debt that I still owe to the family, or do I turn this um, business around again? So £14,000 isn't enough for contractors. So again, like I said at the start, my life is one of extremes. I faced with such an uphill sort of struggle at that point that I just thought, just going to learn how to do it myself. So I started watching oh YouTube God. videos. Yeah, I started watching YouTube videos on how to do um, building work, partition walls, plastering, plumbing, electrics, um, you know, building floors and um, ceilings and all sorts of stuff, even like advanced sort of um, uh, things that you think that wouldn't be easy to pick up, like plastering. 
you know, I, I learned off YouTube how to plaster. And I, I'm I'm very visual. I, like, I love learning with visual yeah. stuff. I, yeah. I, I'm not a person at all. And someone can talk to me for four or five hours on a subject, and I'll, I'll, I'll understand parts of it, but yeah. if I see it visually, I'm yeah. picking it up straight away. So for me, that at that point, I'm like in this restaurant by myself, and I've started ripping down all the old walls, and I'm, um, you know, putting everything in a skip. And I was thinking about six skips later of of all this debris. Started going down to the local justins and I made friends with these guys because I'm I'm buying so much stuff off them and started rebuilding the restaurant. And would you believe with fourteen thousand pound, I turned a small what used to be a Pizza Hut takeaway into a small small restaurant. And it was actually quite nicely fitted. You know, at the end of it, I was very, very proud. I built up gents and um, uh, ladies' toilets. I built a disabled toilet so that we could actually have seating within the restaurant. And we're about two weeks into the the relaunch of the restaurant. And um, it took me about three months on my own to build. We're about two weeks in and I I looked out the window and there's a guy coming along the street and he was one of the biggest food critics in Scotland. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, like this is probably too early for me. Yeah. One of the things that I haven't mentioned was that the reason that the original business in Glasgow failed and, you know, what I was trying to do, I was trying to reinvent the way that Indian restaurants ran. Um, I had been an executive chef with the family for years before that, before my first business and before um, the, the original failure. Um, and I was aware that working with Indian chefs was very, very challenging. There's a different culture within them kitchens. You can't employ people from the local employment pool and bring them into that environment because it's not an environment they want to work in. And mm-hmm. the people within them, them kitchens make it so difficult for you by purposely trying to trip you up and protect their own job that right, you just right. can't anyway. So they're constantly sabotaging your work. They're constantly telling you to do things wrong. And then the boss comes in and says, what the hell's going on? It was him. And, you know, like, so oh, people man. just didn't laugh at the environment. So what I actually done was I created a kitchen system that would allow you to cook fresh Indian food without the need of a skilled chef. So yeah. I had engineered um, this system that you put this, the food into a pan with fresh chicken and you could cook it in six and a half minutes flat. Now, I had to go to the extremes of working out the viscosity of each and every different sauce that we prepared. And there was about 17 different sauces because they have to be of the right viscosity when they go into the oven. So they come out at the right um, right. thickness or thinness and they, they come out. So there was this huge amount of engineering. And because I hadn't worked out in the first business, people were getting inconsistent products. But I'd worked these problems out in the second one. So going back to where where this food critics walking along into the um, towards the restaurant and I'm thinking to myself are we ready for this is he going to come in and completely annihilate us because in the kitchen cooking his food was an 18 year old white kid from the local college and the cooking his nan bread was a 21 year old uh, white girl who was also from the local employment pool so that is a kitchen environment that you would never ever imagine for an Indian restaurant yeah. but my yeah. systems were so good that I allowed them to do that he went away and gave us a 27 out of 30 and said it was the best small Indian restaurant in oh Scotland. Oh, my God. Wow. It was, it was the moment that all these years of experimenting and crazy ideas and just being out there and these failures and rebuilding the restaurant, and all of a sudden I was in this position where all my family said, wow, it worked. It, we, we didn't think this was going to work. Your ideas were so experimental, but you've proven it. And now it's about consistency and let's see where this goes. And I think my family always had a way of playing it down and saying, you know, 
calm down. Let's take it a step at a time. You've got to do this consistently now. And, you know, I'd had all the, the, the advice from them, which was, you know, just, just keep doing this now and pay back your debts. But again, I was, I was thinking, you know, £250,000 is a hell of a lot of money to pay back from one business. So I was already thinking the next stage, I was thinking of, I can sell this store now that it's a success. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, kind of its peak. I can go and try and take a bigger unit that can make more money, that would leave some money yeah. for me and leave some money for the business yeah. to grow as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if I, mean, I had shared that with the family, they would have been, "What the hell are you doing?" Just you know. Besides, I have to ask, right? You know that 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 first failure. Um, what was the hardest, the hardest bit for you? Like when you look back at it, it was admitting um, that, admitting to myself that I'd failed, admitting that you know um, all the ideas that I had weren't actually as good as uh, executed as good as they they were in my head and realizing that again I had to slow down a little bit and and be a little bit more careful in my approach in the future and you know it's funny when I'm talking about that there was never a point in my in that entire journey where I thought I'm going to give up and I'm going to go back and that's what I was going to say to them because the easy thing the easy thing would have been to say you know what I'm going to quit this business thing and I'm going to still get a job, get a nine to five, get a normal salary, and I'm done. What is it, Sand? And this is what really gets me excited, is when people can can go through extreme failure, pick themselves up, and continue to go down this incredibly risky road of business. What is it inside you that you think allows you to keep going even though it seems like the cards went in your favour, man. <laughs> um, I think there's a, an extreme amount of competitiveness. Um, I'm extremely, extremely competitive. I don't like losing. So to me, my business failures were, were losses against uh, my competitors um, and people getting a step ahead of me. That was one thing that really drove me on. Um, the other one was this... Um, uh, you know, in my head from a very young age, I had a picture of how I wanted my life to be. I had a picture of the cars. I grew up um, Ferrari and Lamborghini daft. It was I used to stare at photos and magazines for hours and hours while listening to music on my headphones and just staring at the photos of what it would be like to drive a Ferrari and to own a Ferrari one day. And I just wasn't willing to let go of that. I did not want to settle for I'll be okay living a normal life. That just never, it, it, it was like, I would rather just be gone than have to settle for second best. Where that, no, like, 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 where, like if you were to kind of just think about where that quality or where that desire comes from, I mean, my, my initial thoughts are, is it, is it, is it the result of, you know, um, the, 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 the early, experiences of going through bullying and everything else but um I, I, where do you think that desire to want to be the best comes from i think it's, it's it's a really difficult thing to answer because i think there's so many different things that happen throughout your life one of the things was the uh, um the competitiveness with my brother you know just wanting to be he's my big brother and and we either we played football together 
or we raced each other, or we ran our bikes against each other, or it was playing computer games against each other. We were obsessed with Street Fighter 2. And I had to beat him in every game. Otherwise, the house was mayhem for the next few hours. Mm. It was just constant competitiveness, constantly competing to be the winner. And I think that mindset just, you know, it was from from when we were when we were uh, pretty much born. That was that was the mindset. We were just competing against each other. And I just don't I got into this this mindset that I just don't like losing. So my sister always used to say to me, you are the worst person to play any game against you just don't lose <laughs> you just you don't take loss well and you know it was, a, it, was a, it was an ongoing joke so I think that was probably the the if I think of one core thing that happened was just that constant competitiveness just not wanting to to lose against somebody yeah yeah and um in in terms of in terms of risk taking I mean it's it's fair to say Sanj that you know being in business and be successful you have an appetite the risk taking, right? That's a part of the job. Um, where does like how do you view risk taking? How do you how would you decide um whether something is worthwhile taking the risk on? Like what's your kind of do you have a sort of like um, an underlying set of values or beliefs that you follow? Because obviously to be to be successful in this game, you've not only got to be good at taking a risk, but also making them work as well, right? Yeah, I think it's um, there's a, a lot of responsibility in the kind of risks that a lot of entrepreneurs take because what we never think about is the consequences of it going wrong. We're always looking to reshape and restart somewhere else or do jump into something else. So there's always a backup plan to the plan and, and then there's a backup plan to the backup plan. And it's it's in in my head, a lot of the decisions I made then, I look back at them and I think like, bloody hell you you took a, a hell of a risk you gambled with a lot no wonder people were pushing you away and saying you just got to stop and slow down and in my head it was at the time it was completely and utterly justified because I just looked at the options and I said well if I go back and start working for my family again or I get a job somewhere I'm going to be in debt for the next 15 20 years and that just does not appeal to me you know paying back 250,000 pound how am I going to do it so you know, like it was even during the, the, the process of rebuilding the restaurant and reopening the restaurant, when I did eventually hire a chef, I used that spare time to start buying flats and refurbishing flats using my newly found skills oh, right. to then sell them on. And at the time, there wasn't as many taxes as there is now on, on being able to flip a property. And I flipped a few properties and started paying back this money to my family. And by by about a year and a half in, I'd paid off the £250,000. So the, the number one thing for me at that time, you know, and, and as as irresponsible as people might have thought I was being and that this guy just doesn't stop. He needs to settle down and just do work and, and pay back these debts. In my head, it was like, you might not understand it, but please don't question me and the path that I want to take because I'm going to pay back your debt quicker and I'm going to create something for myself yeah, yeah. to keep my dream alive. So I'm, I don't want to do it on the basis that, okay, I can pay back your debt and you're going to be satisfied. But then I give up my dream. It had to be a balance. And there was always this, this battle in my head about, right, I know I've got responsibilities, but there's also responsibilities to myself and my dreams. And I, I need to keep that alive somehow. That is, you know, I've never thought about it like that. Like in the sense that people having a responsibility to be happy, right? And I, I don't think people 
think about life like that, actually. I think they think about a responsibility to support their family or to support their kids. But um, it's, that is, that is so interesting. And, and um, in, in, terms of, in terms of continuing down that path towards achieving this life that you had, that you had in mind, um, when you look back on those experiences of continuing down that journey, what would you say was like the biggest kind of, apart from the the the, the failure of the of the first business, um, like down that road as you reflect, what would you say were the biggest kind of milestones on that on that road to where you are now? Um, there, there was there was quite a few because my journey took me up and down the country, um, and that. When I when I established one business, I was always looking to grow to a bigger venue. So I went from small takeaway to large takeaway to small restaurant to then looking for a larger restaurant. Yeah. The next stage in my journey was trying to get into a bigger city, get back into Glasgow City Centre or or somewhere where I could establish myself a little bit more. I think you know when you're you're looking at them milestones, it's that uh, it's every time that you should be comfortable that you should be like, I'm happy now, is just saying, right, no, hang on, what's next? It was I remember reading about Sir Alex Ferguson with Manchester United after they won the treble, and he walked into the changing room after the Champions League final and said, right, next year we just go and do it again. And everybody was like in shock, all the players were in shock, saying, hang on, just celebrate for five minutes. You know, you, you, you're yeah. not even celebrating with us, you're already thinking about next year. And I think, you know, I related to that because every time I got to a stage where I thought, people would be really happy with this and say, okay, now I've got to take it to the next level. Now I've got to go a little bit further. I've got to get a little bit further because in my head, when I started that journey of having my own first restaurant, I never wanted to have one or two restaurants. My dream was to have hundreds, perhaps thousands of restaurants across the, the world. So there was this, at the time, what people would think of completely unrealistic dream 10 years later, that dream's now coming true. We're growing into six different international territories and um, with a, a different food type, albeit, but still within restaurants, um, you know, that's that's came came to fruition. It just uh, like you said at the beginning, it's an overnight success. It only took me 15 years to get here. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? I think, you know, if people often, you know, look at people with, you know, nice cars and nice houses or whatever and think, you know, um, you know, it was, it was, it was, the, the the reason I began this podcast was because I wanted people to understand the level of hard work and determination and perseverance and just the story behind getting to a place where someone can afford these things because that often gets overlooked by the glitz and the glamour, right? They forget the the fair relationships, they forget, you know, the birthdays of that that never happened, they forget the huge ups and downs of and for me, you know, that was kind of why I did the podcast. Um, Sanjay, I have to ask a question, right? And I hope you, hope you don't mind me asking it. Are you ever satisfied with the success that you that you see? Because and, and and the reason I ask is because I find that there's a fine line between saying I want more and more and more, and being ambitious and being driven, and also saying, okay, you know what, like. I, if I keep if I keep aspiring for that as the basis for being happy, then 
am I ever going to be happy? Right. And I'm, I'm just trying to see like, what, what's your, what's your take on that? How do you, how do you keep yourself grounded in the beauty of life right now, but also keep that optimism and passion and determination to keep on going, if that makes sense? Yeah. So I think um, the, this is actually something that I think about a lot. And I question myself, like, you know, where, where, what am I working towards? I know that I always dreamed about having a Ferrari, but now I'm like thinking, oh, the new Lamborghini's coming out, the Aventador replacement's coming out, this is coming out, that's coming out. And, you know, I, I start questioning myself, like, is this going to be like the rest of my life is just chasing the next new car that comes out or the next next new Ferrari or the next new Lambo? And I think there's, there's the, the behind the scenes, there's this bigger picture. And the bigger picture was um, that I actually wasn't, working and my biggest motivation wasn't about money it was never about money so money never really came into it money was just an object that allowed me to to do the things that I wanted to do um and if I only had a little bit it allowed me to do the things there and I was you know sort of pushing the boundaries of of where I was when I was opening the restaurants and uh, but it was never about that it was always about proving people wrong people told me throughout my whole life that is impossible that can't be done that this is this is a, you're dreaming too big. You're too ambitious. You need to calm down. The number one motivation for me through that whole process was um, just proving people wrong. And that is, is um, you know, even to this day, we are growing into all these different territories and the business is growing. It's because people said to me a long time ago, it's impossible. I remember telling and confiding in a very, very close friend of mine at the time. And he said, what do you think your company might be worth one day? And I said, I gave him an, an example and I said, Wagamama, who everybody knows in the UK, were once valued at £250 million. And Alan Yu, who was the founder and, and um, owner of that business, decided that it was a, a good time to sell. That business now is worth £550 million. The restaurant group just purchased them a, a few, maybe two years ago, I think it was. And they only had um, just around about 100 restaurants at the time. And, you know, the valuations that restaurant businesses can uh, attain are really, really significant. Um, and I've seen this a number of times with different brands that have done that. So some, I remember saying to my friend that I think my business might be valued at around about £250 million one day because I think I can get to 100 restaurants. And he looked at me and this look in his face of, you absolute idiot. And it was the look, it was the body language. He never said it, but it was almost like anger that he thought, how dare you try and tell me that you're going to create a business worth $250 million? Do you think I'm stupid that you're you're trying to pull the wool over my eyes? And he actually like completely lost confidence in me. And we, we ended up falling out and we never spoke again, um, really because I just felt like I don't want to be around people that have absolutely no faith in me. And a lot of the, the time I was driving my business forward, it was with these kind of comments and these kind of things in mind that people just think this is impossible. And it's not. If you create a good restaurant business with a solid concept and you know that your food and drink, uh, your products are, are good and you can deliver them uh, consistently time and time again, then you have no reason to think that you should only have one restaurant. It is easy to put in uh, with hard work, of course, um, it is easy to put in the systems to be able to allow you to do that in a second venue. And if you can do it in two venues, then why can't you do it in three? If you can do it in three, then why can't you do it in 10? Why do you have to always put limits on how big you can grow? In America, they have a culture 
that you know they talk in the in the millions, tens of millions, and hundreds of millions. In the UK, we talk in the hundreds of thousands, and we talk half a million pound, and people start, you know, taking a big size of and deep breaths, and, oh, half a million pound. Like, you know, the, the these limits that exist, we put these limits there. So all I decided to do was at a very early part of my career was there's no limits. I can grow this as big as I want, and I'm going to grow it as big as I want just to spite these people who say that I can't, I can't do it. So yeah, yeah um, we're probably a few years away from that valuation now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to just say, I mean, just this honor, yeah, as, we, as we approach the end of, of, of this amazing interview, um, it's made the hair on my arm. Like, I don't think about the amount of crap that you've probably had to, had to experience. I had to, for sure. Um, what, does the, uh, what does the future hold for the company now? What can people look forward to? So, Donnershack is uh, um, a, an amazing business that's just grown um, over the last three or four years into something that um kind of makes me pinch myself when I get up in the morning because I went from working in kitchens and restaurants to actually managing an operations team and a marketing team and a finance team and uh, and being in an office every day and working on high level strategy with franchise partners you know that's a, a complete and utter um you know 180 degree turnaround from where I was a few years ago so the business is uh, currently growing in in the UK We've got two venues in uh, Glasgow and Leicester opening up in the next uh, six weeks. We've got um, four new venues opening up in London within the next uh, um, six months. Um, beyond that, um, we've just signed, uh, or, or currently about to sign a deal with a franchise partner who's looking to open up 12 restaurants in uh, London straight away. Um, you know, These are big players, people that own other franchise businesses and a lot of them. So they have the capital and the um, and the resources to be able to roll out at that pace. Um, and it's kind of like for us now to keep up with that. So we are going through a process of, of recruiting um, more people and developing our team to be able to help our franchisees meet their goals. Um, but beyond that, in the background, I'm working uh, with people in America and, and going through all the legal uh, work to be able to start franchising uh, our business in the U.S., we're just about at the end of that. We've just started talking to franchisees and we've got a couple of states, Florida and Texas, where we've already taken deposits um, and we're in uh, negotiations with people in California and New York. So yeah, that business is, is growing uh, really, really nicely. Um, and our, uh, another set of partners who are looking to grow the business in um, Europe. So um, very, very exciting time. Um, the world is our oyster and, you know, like, I keep looking back at that sign. You can't make it out too well, but it, it says it was all a dream. Um, and that's the the, the sort of um, motivation that I want my team to to look at every day and say, yeah, you know what, this all started with with a, a failed business and, and now we're growing into an international restaurant business. So, yeah, it's an exciting time for us. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, Sanj, um, before I go, um, my final question is, and uh, I've decided this week recently, um, if you were to ask one question uh, to the next guest, what would it be? Um, that's a tough one. And you put me on the spot. Uh, I think, what advice would you give yourself when uh, when you were younger? Um, what advice would you give? I ask myself my, that question a lot of the time. And I yeah. think it would have been slow down, believe in yourself, and uh, just take one step at a time and trust the journey. And if you trust the journey and you believe in yourself, that's uh, two of the biggest obstacles that you can you overcome um, to, to get to where you want to be. Love it. Love it, man. Sanj, honestly, man, um, thank you so much. 
for your incredibly valuable time. Um, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you, genuinely. And uh, yeah, man, we look forward to uh, watching the rest of your journey continue. Now. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure being on. <laughs>